Hi, and welcome to Future Thinking from Stylus. I'm your host, Amelia Miranda Williams, Assistant Editor at Stylus's US office. Today, I'll be talking to Natalia Nkande, an expert in racial bias and artificial intelligence. She's the founding executive director and CEO at AI for the People, a nonprofit based in New York that uses popular culture as a way to initiate conversations about racial bias in AI among Black communities. Vitaly is also a fellow at Harvard's Berkman Klein Center of Internet and Society. And before that, she was a tech policy expert for Congresswoman Yvette Clark. And in this role, she was the legislative lead for the Algorithmic Accountability Act, which requires that companies conduct impact assessments on AI tools that are used to share or store personal data. So clearly, we have got a lot to discuss today. We'll address how racial bias is contaminating AI, why some tech giants are now stepping away from facial recognition, and what a racially inclusive future for tech might look like. So welcome, Mutali, and thank you for joining us. Let's jump in at the beginning. Can you give us a brief overview of your research into AI and racial bias? Yeah, so my research interest really started in 2016 when uh, Kathy O'Neill, who's a data scientist and mathematician trained at Harvard, wrote the book Weapons for Math Destruction. And what she did within that book that really compelled me was really point out how the statistical models that drive algorithmic decision-making are subjective in nature. And the book has around seven case studies that go into everything from criminal justice to employment to uh, recruitment to social services where these uh, systems are being used and then points out bias. So, as much as I loved Weapons for Math Destruction, it really did not look at race as a factor. And that created this opportunity for, for me to really figure out how is it that a recruitment algorithm is more likely to choose somebody called John as opposed to somebody called Jabari? How is it that if uh, you and I were both defendants, and we had a bail predictive, bail predictive tool that I would get a longer sentence because I'm a black person than you would because you're a white person and so on. And then the other part of it was how do people not know this and why don't people know this? So once I got through that, I started to do work on critical race, the understanding of critical race theory and technology published advancing racial literacy in tech, which came, excuse me, which came out only a year ago, but feels like a year ago was 20 years ago. <laughs> and then um, have just published with the Harvard African American Policy Review an article called Automated Anti-Blackness that looks at how facial recognition used in the context of housing and policing reinforces some of the systemic uh, racism that we're seeing people protest about now via Black Lives Matter. I was, yeah, I was really curious about the racial literacy piece that you were working on. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about this concept? You know, what do you mean? How can companies use it? Yeah, so it's a, th it's a three-part uh, theoretical framework, and it really starts with companies understanding the racial context in which they exist. 
So for example, if you are a Pepsi, for example, and you are creating an ad and it's going to be a protest ad, you need to understand the relationship between policing and black communities before you create a storyboard where there is this protest, somebody is handed a Pepsi and that kind of dissolves everything. What, what wasn't understood in that particular ad was that the policing system that we have now is an outgrowth of overseers, which were part of the way slaves and slave people were kept on plantations in the, in the United States. They then became slave patrols that then became what we know as the modern police. So from the beginning, there was this antagonistic relationship between black community and the police, right? And if you had known that and you were looking to develop an ad that was looking at using Pepsi as the example, as, an ex as a community builder, as something really great, you probably, if you knew the context, wouldn't, would not have uh, allowed that storyboard to go forward. The second part of racial literacy is really this emotional part. It is incredibly difficult and fraught to talk about race in this country. We don't have a shared language. We don't have a shared understanding. White children are not brought up to understand the reality of American society. So for many, watching these uh, statues come down mean very little if you are a white child in the South and Robert E. Lee is thought to be a historic figure. When if you're a black child, you're being given this other education around Robert E. Lee being a slave um, holder, being incredibly violent. The thing that was really, um, that's taught to many black children about Robert E. Lee was that he took pride in how much he could torture black people because he didn't think that they were people. So to walk past that statue every day has these two very parallel meanings, one that means nothing in the white world and one that's incredibly uh, painful in the black. So when you start to have these conversations, there is this emotional piece that is unacknowledged and so it really flanks the conversation. And then the third part of racial literacy is an action plan. So. Once you understand the history of race in your context as a brand and what you're trying to do and who your consumer is, and then you understand that your consumers, largely black and white, are going to have very different emotional responses, how do you create policies, procedures, campaigns, and products that enable to hold the reality of that history, to heal that history, and, and any type of small way, and then to create a product that does what I think the folks at Pepsi were probably trying to do with, you know, with uh, Kyle Jenner, um, but but does it in a way that's effective. Yeah. I think this idea of nuance that you seem to get on all of these different stories that people have to understand seems like something that is really missing in just general social dialogue and kind of leads me into thinking about how people think of computers and AI in general, thinking of them as these systems that are logic and free of bias. Yet your work obviously shows this isn't the case. Can you briefly explain how this bias gets baked into algorithms and how it manifests in their performance? Yeah, sure. So um, the way that machine learning technologies operate, so machine learning is actually the engineering term for what we think of as AI. 
and AI is much more of a marketing term and might change. So for anybody listening, if you hear a new term, that, that's just because AI now has some kind of like toxic undertones in some circles. But the way that they build this, these machine learning systems is through training. So if you have a system that is being uh, built to see you, like a facial recognition system, what is actually being invoked and engaged is computational vision. And the way that the system sees you is by, is by being fed a whole battery of pictures for the sake of this conversation, a million pictures. And what it does with those pictures is that it creates a statistical model of what it thinks is a face. So it would be, um, you know, it would be kind of the space between the eyes, the width of the nose, the length between the cheek and the chin, the skin color, the hair length, etc 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 and over this million um training set million picture training set it's gonna get to ranges so the average range of circumference of a face is x the average length of a nose is y and what happens within the system is that it's then coded which are on binaries so you would have male and female so already there's bias there because if you're somebody who is non-gender or transgender, your facial architecture isn't going to change. Your eyes don't get bigger through reassignment surgery. However, gender is a social construct. And so since gender is a social construct, there are some people that realign. And that is true, but that's not the way our systems are built. Not all skin is white. But because of the way that this research is done and has been historically done, they get data sets from people that they know, people in their environment. I did a piece for a magazine last year where I looked at the, where I looked at the demographics of the AI research teams for Google and Facebook. And for Google, they had one black person out of 894 people in their Google Brain group, which was doing a lot of this work on natural language processing and facial recognition. And in the Facebook group, they actually had no black people. And so if you can imagine, those groups tend to be very homogeneous, tend to be either white Chinese or, or people of Indian descent, tend to be male. And so when you're in the testing phase, Testing these systems is incredibly important. So there is no real economy to going out and finding out a diverse data set for something that you don't even know is going to work. And so I would encourage people to not think that AI or machine learning systems are racist or even the people that create them. They simply reflect the training data. So in facial recognition, those pictures become a proxy for race because you're making the assumption that all faces are white. And that obviously we know that that's not the truth. And so thinking more about how facial recognition has been appearing in the news recently, there's obviously been a lot of discussion as police forces are using the technology during the recent Black Lives Matter protests to identify, more frequently misidentify protesters through surveillance cameras and social media photos that don't have the faces blurred out. 
And so we now are seeing IBM halt development, Amazon and Microsoft are pausing research and deployment by police forces. But do you think this is enough with the tools still half baked in a certain sense, as you were saying, and what needs to happen next? Um, so there are two things. There is a very famous paper that came out of N um, MIT by Joey Bulawami and Timnit Gurbu that found that in 40% of cases, facial recognition systems misidentify and misgender uh, dark people. So not even black people, anybody who is not whiter than white is going to be misidentified. So I definitely think that if you are using a system to identify people for the purposes of criminalization, then it should not be used. But I actually go further in my thinking and say that because I was part of the Algorithmic Accountability Act team, we don't actually want any system that is discriminatory or it does not work because facial recognition systems are really chad recognition systems right they're misidentifying white women too if you are saying that you are identifying faces and you can only identify a very small part of the global population then they shouldn't be in the market at all they should be completely banned but that's not the only way that racial bias is creeping in. They're using inputs like zip code to make predictions. And in the US context, zip code is linked to redlining, which was a, a, a federal policy to really discriminate against black people and enrich white people. But the reason zip codes become an issue too is that they're attached to census tract data. So, so through knowing where somebody lives, you actually know their race, you know the, the median age, you know the median income, you know their health outcomes, you know um, how long they went to school, you know their levels of criminality, and that is biased because of these other policies. So I would say facial recognition should be banned, but all systems that are using these, what we call proxies for race, should not be on the marketplace unless they can be shown that they're non-discriminatory. Yeah. And so when we think about regulating these systems, I mean, who do you think is gonna step in? Is it gonna be government, uh, federal government regulating it, or do you think it's gonna be more local level, because we've already seen Oakland and Cambridge ban it within their communities. I think it's gonna be both. I think it's gonna be driven by the streets. So shout out Movement for Black Lives for even creating a political, excuse me, creating a political environment where facial recognition kind of sounds very abstract to me, but when they were like, no, it's used in policing and it's used in policing in this context of protest and we all have this shared language around protest being good and protest being peaceful people were suddenly like oh my goodness we shouldn't use facial recognition but to your point it was the companies that realized that the the political desire to believe that ai systems and machine learning systems are good and neutral that day is over. So I think that we're going to need a grassroots movement. I also think that at the local level, it's incredibly important because these systems, whether you're talking about a facial recognition system, which could be used in your doorbell, so anybody that uses Amazon Ring, they're, they're taking a picture of the person coming to your door. 
and they're using a facial recognition technology to decide whether that person is a good or a bad person, which is very, um, you know, how can you tell <laughs> from somebody's face? Um, so we know that that's junk science. They're also, uh, when you think about AI, they're also, if you're opening your phone with your fingerprint, that's another way. So there's so many different ways that these systems are being deployed that I think that we should not be using biometrics on humans, but I was speaking to a zoologist that was saying they were using a form of biometric technology to identify zebras in the wild. So they were doing stripe recognition. And once they recognized the zebra, because the zebra is going extinct, they could then figure out what are the conditions that we need for optimum life. And I thought that that was a beautiful way of using a biometric system that isn't going to unhinge on human rights and is actually supporting life and protecting life. And maybe it's something we could use in the ocean too. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. I haven't heard of that before. Definitely need to I thought it was out brilliant. More about that. I mean, it kind of brings me to my next slightly sadder point, which was that there are a lot of companies out there who are using facial recognition that aren't the big guys. And so, I mean, it kind of makes all of this with IBM and Amazon and Microsoft start to seem like a marketing move. I mean, what do you think people need to do to limit uh, facial recognition's harmful effects more broadly, looking beyond just these temporary pauses? So uh, with IBM, it's really interesting. That was a complete shutdown of that business vertical. They were not a big player in the field. So... The, it was good that they did it, but they, you know, they weren't losing that much. But what they did do is that they wrote a letter directly to the Congressional Black Caucus and laid out in their own words, this is what the technology does and this is how it's used. And then put political pressure on Amazon and Microsoft who came out. And if these big players are doing that, they're also gonna put their lobbying power behind not just them stopping, but they're gonna want to shut down that whole business vertical because they're no longer competitive. So even though you have Clearview AI, which came out almost immediately and they were like, well, you know, they don't use our facial recognition in this way, but people know that the way Clearview AI built its data set was by going on your and you know our Facebook pages and taking our pictures without consent, which is another battery of privacy concerns, you know, that's unconstitutional. So I think that the symbolic decision to not carry on or pause that has created this opportunity where regulation will come in. The issue that we do have is we're also in an election year and assuming that we return the same house, the same uh, Senate and the same executive branch, it may be harder to get a ban through, but I'm thinking because of the way TikTok was used to um, sabotage the Trump rally, that there, there is now this vendetta, right? I think it would be easier to now suggest that we need regulation because of this very, because of the way algorithms in that particular uh, instance were used against this particular political actor. Interesting. I mean, the idea of TikTok sort of featuring into this meet, 
brings me to this idea that you know facial recognition and even machine learning really extends beyond just these hard ways that we're thinking of in terms of policing or you know determining whether someone can bank and you know quite serious decisions like that. At Stylus, we've written quite a bit about how facial recognition is being used by media and even entertainment companies to provide viewers with personalized cuts of sporting events and television shows. And I think people feel kind of amicable almost to this technology because it seems entertainment and light, but you know, in your perspective, is it actually, I mean, does it differ in any meaningful way from these other no. things? No, I, th I think that the test cases that you're using are light yeah. and they're entertaining. But we have no legislation to say that they can only be used in those instances to give you this very unique viewing experience. Right now, they're intermediary companies. So the, the companies that enable for those personalized sports experiences or entertainment experiences can then go and sell the, your face effectively to another company that could be using it for ice and immigration and splitting families apart. So you have the consumer on one end who just wants to see their face in a movie or just wants to be an extra or just wants to, I don't know, dance with JLo, whatever the product is, not thinking that we don't have this larger regula re regulation that says it can only be used in this way. And the issue that I've had really up until the IBM decision is because my work is really looking at protecting human and civil rights. That's really unprofitable. Like I'm always the person that comes in and people are like, oh my God, here comes this Debbie Downer and she's gonna lose us money. And my retort is always, well, do we need more billionaires? Do we, you know, do, do we need more rich people or do we need a society in which everybody can thrive? And so I would suggest to consumers that they start to think more holistically about whether they need that particular experience and think more broadly about how these other, the unintended use for, the, for their picture could be extremely grave. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's such a self-centered thing. You think like, oh, well, it's not gonna harm me. I'm just doing this fun thing without understanding even the whole argument as you just explained behind it, which is horrifying essentially when you boil it down like that. And we saw this horrible example by Snap, who on Juneteenth, which for those of us in the States, many people are just learning that that's the celebration of the end of, of slavery in the US um, in 1865 in Texas. But Snap did this horrible filter where you could put your face into effectively a face graph. That's what it looks like. And then when you smile, you break chains. I mean, how... How incredibly triggering for Black people. Again, going back to this idea of racial literacy, how, you know, they didn't understand the context. They didn't understand the emotion that comes with <laughs> being part of a formerly enslaved community. And then their action plan was something that was ultimately creating a data set for a third party vendor. Yeah, that, I mean, even just the visuals of that was really strange. Uh, to think about. But yeah, when you put it like that, it feels very sinister in a way, yes. certainly. Um, but moving forward from all of this bad, scary stuff, in a sense, um, like how do you think companies 
could work with facial recognition and even AI more generally to reassess their products and better support specifically Black communities, but also other minority communities? So I think that um, AI-enabled systems offer great tools, but they cannot be relied upon to make all your decisions. So for companies that are using uh, recruitment tools to decide which resume, who to recruit, those, those tools are biased. They are often looking at historical uh, data from the company, who, who did best in the company. That's going to include things like names. Names are gendered and they're racialized. Zip code is often on people's resume. That will be picked up. We know that that's racialized. Um, you know, you might have Amazon is the famous example where you are more likely to get an engineering job at Amazon if you were called John. So that just lets you know who, who was in that particular data set. And so, yes, use them. They're convenient. They're efficient. But they cannot be your only tool. If you, if you get in a recruitment pool and everybody is a white man, you then need human decision makers to come in and decide whether that's the type of company that you want to build in the future. Not that it's right or wrong. Um, in terms of facial recognition, if you're using it, what is the intrinsic value of putting somebody at an event that they weren't in in their real life? Mm -hmm. And I've done an incredible amount of work on deep fakes, and it seems to be a marketing thing. There is no, I mean, you can put me dancing with JLo, but I didn't. Ultimately, I didn't have that human experience. So I think that as, there, as we're thinking about next generation products, we should be thinking about authenticity and we should be thinking about real lived experience and as opposed to gimmicks, which is a way I think a lot of these tools are used. And then the last thing specifically about black and uh, indigenous and other communities of color, why not create amazing storyscapes of ancient Africa, like the Black Panther, that was such a huge success because it was this aspirational vision of Africa's future, but it harked back to this great and amazing past where white people had not come in and colonized. It was, you know, those people were just allowed to, to be the way that they were. Imagine a past and a future in which the indigenous kingdoms that ruled this land of, the, of North America were strong. And think about all the, the medicines and the magic and, and the mystery of that. Why not create those, those speculative pasts and, and aspirational futures that are affirming? That, that would be how, if I were sitting in some of those rooms, I would be doing some of that deep literacy work and also hiring those people to provide to provide that content. And then even in the production, being very clear about how you hire, how you treat those people, how you retain them, and then how their ideas are valued. And the last thing I would say is also pay those people. Pay those people equally if they're women and pay those pe people equally if they are racialized and negatively racialized people. Those are the ways that you're gonna get the best products. And that's the best case uses for those types of technologies. Well, that is, I think, an incredibly upbeat note and useful, really, note to end this on. 
And I'm sure that I will be thinking differently about my phone's biometric details next time I go to open it. <laughs> thank, <Yes>. you. <laughs> thank you so much for joining us, Mutali. And thanks everyone for listening. I hope you'll tune in next time for more future thinking from Stylist. Thanks, Stylist family. Stay safe, everybody. You've been listening to Future Thinking from Stylus, the show where our analysts, alongside industry thought leaders, unpack the big trends you need to know about. Find out more about what the future holds for your business at stylus.com. And if you like what you heard today, make sure you subscribe to Future Thinking in iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts to hear new episodes as soon as they're available.